G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Hello and welcome to today's 2020 podcast on the Vision Radio Network. Remember you can hear 2020 weekdays from 10am Australian Eastern Time on Vision. We continue now with Lee Hatch's series on Aussie Ambassadors with sports journalist and broadcaster Craig Hamilton. It was September 2000 and Craig was about to undertake the assignment of a lifetime covering the Sydney Olympic Games. This never came to fruition because on the day he was meant to travel to Sydney, he ended up in a psychiatric hospital. Disoriented and desperate, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder or manic depression. After re-evaluating his life and receiving treatment, Craig's now one of Australia's top speakers and advocates for mental health issues. 200,000 Australians are affected by bipolar disorder every year. This is no longer a taboo topic and imperative to discuss. Craig, tell us about your life before your breakdown, just before the Olympics. Well, I came off a dairy farm. I grew up in the Hunter Valley in a town called Singleton. And I thought for a long time that's what I might uh, do for career. My dad was a dairy farmer and I was there until I was 18. And, you know, had a had a great childhood, played a lot of sport in Singleton, played rugby union, played cricket, a lot of great friends, good family. Um, you know, I don't think anyone has an idyllic childhood. I don't think, I think that's a myth, but it was pretty good. You know, certainly no complaints. I got a job in Newcastle. Um, my first job out of school was as a, as a coal miner. I came to Newcastle to live. I worked underground in the mines for 16 years and Around about the mid-90s, I got an opportunity to do a bit of radio. Um, you know, it was one of those fork-in-the-road moments. So I got a, a chance to, to go on air live and, and actually do some cricket commentary because I was playing cricket in Canberra in a match. And then I found, gee, I love this, um, and I could actually do it. I thought, I wouldn't mind doing this for career. And so for the next six years, I slowly but surely worked towards that point and got some opportunities along the way with, with the ABC. Um, got a job in 1999 and then just before the Olympics in, in 2000, of course, um, that's when it all came to a head with a psychotic episode. So, of course, there was a, a big build-up to that Lee and, and a period of you know very severe ill health in the 12 months before that but still it came out of nowhere. Was there something in your life or in your health where depression was evident then? It's a good question because you know hindsight you know it's 2020 vision I can yeah. look back at the years back even to my teenage years and I can now and could at the time post 2000 recognize the signs of mild depression periodically 
at, at the time you don't know what it is. You just, you know, you feel flat for a period of weeks, you feel tired, you feel restless, you feel anxious, um, you, you know, motivation goes. And I can recognise there were periods of time, even through my teens, that that was the case, but I didn't for one moment stop and think hey there's an underlying problem here uh, there's an illness here it was just life and that was the way it was it, it, it wasn't until the symptoms became extreme uh, just before the Olympics or the you know the 12 months prior that there was a recognition that gee there is a problem here. Have you thought about this question to what extent was this your health like just what you're like to what extent was it your circumstances? Another good question. Look, I think I think there's an element of both of those things in this. And you can't uh, review a situation of mental ill health or physical ill health, for that matter, and not look at the big picture. I don't think you can narrow it down to one thing. Uh, certainly my lifestyle was not one that was conducive to good mental health. I lived at a breakneck speed. I had very little downtime. I didn't have an off button. I didn't have an ability to say no to requests to do things, both at work and also uh, away from work. If someone wanted something done, uh, you know, they would ask, and, and I just felt incapable of saying no I've got too much on the plate so I, I quite often overloaded uh, my work schedule no relaxation um, didn't worry too much about what I ate diet wise drank too much alcohol there was a certainly a binge drinking factor in there which uh, you know I enjoyed those times but they were counterproductive I can see that now so the style of life you know the lifestyle I was living didn't help there's, there's no doubt about that. Can I ask you about one particular episode where you stumbled upon a church in the middle of the night? Tell us about that one. Well, that's when I hit rock bottom, yeah. um, which, you know, I still, I still see that as a, as a watershed moment. There were a lot, there's a lot of watershed moments in this story. But the, the period of time up to the Sydney Olympics, and I think most people who have heard my story or heard me speak about the story, they might have read interviews, they look at that, that episode of psychosis and mania on the train station which saw me hospitalised as the defining moment of the story. But prior to that, almost from the beginning of 2000, uh, so in January we're talking, right through until July... So a seven-month period, I was in the grip of a very serious depression, mm. which just got worse and worse. It was untreated. Uh, for, a uh, for a significant period of that time, it was undiagnosed. And being an Australian male, I certainly didn't tell anyone I was feeling like that. I didn't share the, the fact that I was really struggling. I just continued to try and work on with it. And the day I ended up outside the church was when I was at rock bottom. I, I wasn't sleeping at all. I was severely depressed. I was suicidally depressed. And I got out of bed, I can remember, at 4 o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. I had huge anxiety. And what I'd always done, Lee, to minimise stress or to relax in a way was to exercise. That was a, uh, and so I decided I'd go for a run at four o'clock in the morning. And I had no, I had nothing in the tank. I simply had no energy to 
to do this physically and I only ended up about three or four hundred metres away from from the house in a terrible state. I was, um, you know, I was crying. I was I'd completely broken down. Ended up in front of this church. I thought, well, I'll go in. I'll go in. And, of course, the joint was locked um, as it was. I said a prayer at that moment and I'd never really said a prayer before, not one from... This was from right down from a, you know, a soul that was screaming out. And, um, you know, it was pretty basic. It was, you know, God, I, I don't know whether you're there. I'm not sure. I don't know whether you exist. But if you do, I'd like some intervention. And I need it now because I've got nothing left. I've heard of people talk about the moment they surrender and just throw their attempts to control their lives and control their world uh, or hand it over to someone else or to something else, something outside themselves. I suppose that was that was that moment because I think for a lot of us we assume that we can control so much of our lives and we spend an, an enormous amount of energy yes. trying to do that. Yep. And when you're desperate and things aren't working at every place you go to try and change your uh, situation doesn't work. That just came from nowhere. When I was 37 years of age, I'd never been one who'd said a lot of prayers, to be frank. But I said one that day because I'd been down every other road, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. It made you feel better? Uh, that's a good question because... I suppose I felt a bit of a release, yes, I think that's that's true, because it had come from so deep within me, it was like unburdening myself in some ways. Mm. I still went home afterwards, I was still in a terrible state. The next day wasn't a great day either, and the day after wasn't, but slowly but surely things did turn around and I've got to also say at this period of time I'd only just started medication for depression I hadn't been on any medication up until that time and it took a while to work as well but it, it, all these things happened within you know within a couple of weeks what happened on the train station well the train station became the other side of the depression um, and that was that was a manic explosion uh, and a psychosis and, and just to fill in very briefly the, the gap between that uh, that depression, it, it, from that time outside the outside the church till the day I was on Broadmeadow Railway Station was probably a to, uh, probably a time frame around five or six weeks, and in that time my my mood had shifted from depression very slowly but surely into an elevated state into mania and then psychosis, and I was delusional. Um, I was high, extremely high, and um, became psychotic on the train stage. I was re ready to get on a train. I had a media pass around my neck to go and work in Sydney on the games, and I didn't get there. I became um, verbally aggressive, verbally abusive, and the police were called, uh, which is generally what happens when someone's in that state and I was picked up by the police and thankfully they were used to this situation and, and even today Lee the, the nature of mental health crisis when mental health crisis happens then the police are still the first port of call and they understood that hey this was a mental health issue and they took me straight to um, psychiatric hospital in Newcastle where I was diagnosed pretty quickly with 
with bipolar disorder. Uh, you know, all the all the uh, the dots joined up, and uh, that was the diagnosis. And on the way to the Sydney Olympics to be a reporter there at the worst possible time. Or the best possible time. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Depends how you look at yeah. it, and I, I, I choose to look at it, uh, you know, in the latter. I think the latter situation's the the truth. Um, it happened at the best possible time because my life, um, and yes, there's an underlying illness there. There was um, the circum, you know, everyone I think in their life Lee, has a default position when their life becomes too stressful. They'll either become unwell physically or mentally. Um, and you know, my default line was was a mental health issue, and I think had the events not happened at Broadmeadow Railway Station, it could have been far worse. I could have been on the train on the way to Sydney. I could have got off that train in Sydney, where I was. No one would have known who I was. At least I was known in Newcastle. Someone could say, "Hey, that's." You know, that, that's Craig Hamilton. He's not normally like this. This is way out of character for him. There's obviously a, a problem here. He's not well. Had I got off in Sydney um, and behaved the way I, I was behaving on the station in Newcastle, then, you know, anything's possible. Anything could have happened. That's a good point. This is the 2020 podcast from the Vision Radio Network. We're returning now to the conversation with sports journalist and broadcaster Craig Hamilton as part of Lee Hatch's Aussie Ambassadors series. We return to the conversation just after Craig speaks of missing out on an opportunity of a lifetime, covering the Sydney Olympics. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder just before he went to Sydney to start his work at the Olympics, and we pick up the conversation as he talks about what it was like when he was first diagnosed. So you spend time in hospital and then emerge from it. How long did that process take? Well, I was in hospital for 12 days. I watched the Sydney Olympics um from the the psychiatric ward in Newcastle. How'd that make you feel? Um, well, for the first week I was in there, I was still so high that I, I didn't think I was unwell. And for anyone with bipolar disorder, they'll tell you that who's ever had a manic high, you feel fantastic. You, you, you're literally walking on um, walking on air. So for the first week, it didn't really hit me that I wasn't there. And I was supposed to be. By the end of the first week, I had plans of going down to, and working on the Olympics for the second week. You know, I thought, oh, this is just an aberration. This is just a, you know, a hiccup, yeah. little hurdle. I'll get myself out of here and I'll get down to Sydney. Um, but of course, that didn't happen. So it really, I suppose, it dawned on me when Kathy Freeman won her gold medal in the 400, and I was watching that on television in the psych ward in Newcastle, I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to get there. This this dream's over. And I suppose I was, you know, angry and very disappointed for a period of time. It did take me a while. It took me months to get over that. But then I realised, and of course, the, the next 12 months were difficult because I didn't know whether that was... I was very uncertain times through that next 12 months as I came to terms with the fact that I had a serious uh, mental illness that um yeah i came there was there was acceptance that was the next thing and then i moved forward and i thought well you can either you know you can either tick, kick the toys out of the cot here or you can um pick yourself up and and do something with 
the experience, and that's what I've chosen to do. And that's through a combination of both treatment and medication. And lifestyle change and attitude change. Uh, I've had a range of, you know, I've, I've looked into the holistic um, area of treatment. I've embraced things like yoga, meditation. Um, I eat a lot differently. I've removed alcohol from the equation. Uh, that took some time. Certainly since 2000, I, I'd only, I only consumed alcohol moderately, but in the last uh, couple of years, it's, you know, just gone from the landscape altogether and I must admit I, I feel much better for that. The way I live today is significantly different to the way I lived my life pre-2000. Is your bipolar under control? Well it's a good question too because uh, I've had some relapse episodes in the last uh, 12 years it'll be 13 years in September since I was diagnosed I had uh, an episode with a high again which saw me hospitalised in 2007 and I had an episode again in 2010 late 2010 which saw me hospitalised again and you know with this illness you can't take your eye off it you can't become complacent with it and if you drop back into old patterns of behavior and old attitudes and you know you you get you just assume you're okay then it's one of those these things that will jump out of the ground and bite you again and it has but it, it, the short answer to your question in the past two and a half years i've been very well and I intend to stay that way. Good on you. And even more than that, you have become a spokesperson for mental illness, which I'm sure has been a, a really gratifying and important thing to do for the benefit of many people. Well, I'd like to think so. Yeah, and the, I'm the, sure that's true. I, I know it's true uh, because I get wonderful correspondence. Yeah. And I meet some fantastic people. I've spoken around Australia in the last seven or eight years, um, all sorts of different places, in capital cities, at in big conferences, big corporate conferences, or community forums where there's 200 people in a in a small country hall in outback Queensland, New South Wales, WA. It's it's the the opportunities to go and speak have been there, and the the stories. It's amazingly you tell your story. And you, you tell it warts and all, and you, you, you paint a picture. And you say, this is my experience, and this is what I've learned from that experience, and this is what I intend to do with that experience. Then people will tell you their story. And it's incredibly empowering, because for a lot of people, it's the, you're the first person that they've ever shared the story with. Yes. You know, you can meet someone who's 45 years of age, who's 60 years of age, and they'll say, that happened to me when I was 25, or that happened to me when I was 36, and they've never told anyone. They've ended up in hospital really acutely unwell. They've been discharged. They've got on with their lives, and they've never actually sh you know, been able to share or felt comfortable sharing the, the nitty-gritty. And when someone does that, it's uh, you know it's it's fantastic. I'm sure. Was it a challenging thing and a confronting thing to so expose yourself by telling your story, what and all, early on? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I remember um, the first thing I did publicly was for a newspaper, a lift out in Newcastle for men's health. And I just talked about it. I was asked would I, would I do an interview about it. And I, I did it reluctantly, but I thought, no, nah, look, I'm not the only one who goes through this. I said, actually, depression's quite common. I knew that by that stage. And so I did the interview. And from there, things, you know, um, not snowballed, but went from, can you come and speak here? Will you do this? And then there was a request from Random House to do a book. And that's when it really started to escalate in terms of uh, public awareness and, you know, that we've got a guy here who's an advocate and he will speak. And But early on, certainly, it was difficult because it was a really difficult time. It's the most challenging thing I've ever been through. I've got no doubt. Craig, if there are people listening tonight who are struggling perhaps in the early stages of some depression or who are in the midst of it now, are there things that you would say to them? Well, the number one thing I would say would be to share your experience with someone. Don't try and do it alone because I did for six or seven months and I got to the absolute rock bottom, which I've described. And when you're suicidal, there's not far to go from there. I mean, that's pretty much down the bottom of the barrel. And I'd got to that point and no one knew. I was carrying that around and no one in the world knew about it. And that gets dangerous when you get to that stage. And um, and I think that's how suicide happens in Australia. It happens anywhere when no one else knows. Uh, but the families, the communities are left to pick up the pieces. And it's a you know, it's just the cost in human terms is huge. So I would say to someone, even if it's a mild depression, get some intervention early. Go and talk to your doctor. Go and talk to a counsellor, a friend, a family member, uh, someone who you can that you trust, that you can share the story and say, look, I'm really struggling here. And then you, you, you're bringing in a support base, and I think that's incredibly important. I'm sure that's great advice. Craig Hamilton, I'm so glad you've joined us. If you're interested, Craig's actually written two books. One, Broken Open, and the second one that he uh, released last year is A Better Life. Craig, thank you so much indeed, and congratulations on a, a wonderful role that you now play today. Thank you very much, Lee. It's great to talk to you, mate. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.